Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Why is it so easy to convince people of a fallacy? One of the reasons has to do with the decline in American education and American comprehension. We have a decay of communication. We do not know how to effectively and actively listen and speak to one another without getting our feelings all ruffled and feeling offended and oppressed because someone disagrees with us or showed us we're wrong. I've been reading a book called The COVID Operation, and there is a part in the book that really stands out to me that I wanted to read out loud to you, my listeners. This will help explain why we're so easily manipulated. And I don't want you to feel like there's something wrong about who you are as a person because you've been deceived. I just want you to be aware of how easy it is to believe what the masses tell you and why. And so here we are. It's called the perfect storm. Looking back over the course of many events during the last few decades, sooner or later something bad was bound to happen. Most likely no one, except the people who planned this, could have predicted that a made-up pandemic would be used to shut down the entire world. But many people have been saying that the state of education, medicine, government, and the media have been deteriorating for a very long time. As it turns out, they were right, and these factors created a perfect environment for the events that began in early 2020. Let's start with education. Well-educated people know a lot about history, and also about the world they live in today. They are critical thinkers and ask questions about what they read, see, and hear. Educated people can contribute to society in numerous ways, which include working in their communities, building strong families, and engaging in productive work. At one time, graduating from high school was an achievement worth working toward, a college education even more so because it led to higher lifetime earnings. Things have changed and not for the better. More than 30 million adults in the U.S. cannot read or write above the third grade level, and 50% of adults can't read a book at an eighth grade level. As of December 14, 2017, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that 90% of Americans aged 25 and older had completed high school. This means that most of the adults who cannot read at the 8th grade level are also high school graduates. This is not good. The situation is not much better for college graduates. In 2019, 
a Gallup Lumina Foundation poll determined that only 13% of Americans thought that college graduates were well-prepared for successful employment. The sentiment was even stronger for Americans who had earned college degrees. Only 6% of them thought that college grads were ready to start work successfully. Colleges and universities are clearly not preparing students to lead productive and fulfilling lives. The recent trend toward establishing quote-unquote safe spaces on college campuses provides an example of how ill-prepared many college students are for success in life. Safe spaces are places where students are protected from ideas and speech that has the potential to make them feel uncomfortable or with which they disagree. The New York Times featured an article in 2015 on a safe space established at prestigious Brown University in response to on-campus talks about, quote, the role of government in sexual assault. Student volunteers advertised the room as a retreat for students to recuperate who found the debate upsetting. Emma Hall, a rape survivor and sexual assault peer educator, helped to set up the room, which was equipped with Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, cookies, coloring books, and a video featuring puppies playing. Emma reported attending part of the lecture, but had to return to the safe space because, quote, I was feeling bombarded by a lot of viewpoints that really go against my dearly and closely held beliefs, end quote. An inability to listen to anything other than speech that reinforces one's beliefs should be concerning to all of us. But Brown's safe space was not an isolated case. By 2017, not only were safe spaces becoming more common on college campuses, but, quote, controversial speakers, end quote, defined as individuals discussing a point of view that some students did not agree with, had their lectures canceled. Some who showed up to deliver their talks were met with threats and violence and were forced to leave. Colleges and universities were at one time places in which students learned how to listen to different points of view, and if they disagree, explain the basis for their disagreement. Open debate was part of college life. Protecting people from hearing opposing points of view does not lead to the ability to engage in critical or independent thinking. Why is this important? It's easier to sell a false story to a population of people if a significant percentage of them cannot read or comprehend or think critically. As you will learn in this book, there were no data to support the declaration of a pandemic at the time it was announced. And as time went on, data clearly showed that the declaration was unwarranted. The stories about the pandemic became more and more implausible, even as restrictions on the daily life of citizens became more onerous. For example, small businesses were closed because being around other people was quote unquote dangerous and to be avoided. Buying food at crowded grocery stores and purchasing goods at big box stores, however, was not dangerous. In other words, the virus was somehow neutralized while a person shopped at Walmart, but became quite virulent in small shoe stores. Who would believe such nonsense? People who are poorly educated and who have not been taught to engage in independent and critical thinking. Medicine has a long history of recklessness and arrogance and has been careening toward disaster for a long time. Many books have been written about this topic, but perhaps the most important issue to discuss here is how easily doctors and the medical profession can be persuaded to do just about anything. The best example? The recent opioid epidemic, which should have led to major reforms in medical training and practices, but did not. Many people still think that illegal pill mills were the main cause of the opioid crisis, but that played a rather small role. 
It was organized medicine, multi-billion dollar drug companies, and government partners that caused this disaster. The story of what really happened provides some insight as to how the COVID-19 debacle could be orchestrated. While there were many manufacturers of opioid drugs, one of the biggest and most influential was Purdue Pharma. The President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis concluded that Purdue Pharma's marketing program and the company's investment of billions of dollars in influencing government regulation and medical policy resulted in a tenfold increase in opioid prescribing in the U.S. Purdue benefited greatly. Several members of the Sackler family, principal shareholders in Purdue, and a few other opioid manufacturing companies became billionaires as a result. Purdue was not the only drug company that profited from the opioid epidemic. How did this happen? Bertha Madras of Harvard Medical School was principal author of the commission's report. She says the drug companies invested enormous amounts of money that, quote, literally bought off, end quote, the Joint Commission, which accredits hospitals and sets medical policies. The Federation of State Medical Boards, several American pain associations, and the legislator by investing almost $2.5 billion in both lobbying and funding members of Congress. In fact, there are more drug industry lobbyists than elected members of Congress, which allowed the companies to successfully block the efforts of a few legislators that knew there was a problem and tried to do something about it. Drug companies even controlled physician training and the development of guidelines for treating pain. In effect, the drug companies corrupted the very institutions that should have been protecting Americans from them, converting them from regulators to business partners. The investment paid off. By 2012, American doctors were writing 255 million prescriptions per year for opioid drugs. The drug companies were well aware of the negative impact of their products and actively pursued strategies to expand the market for them anyway. For example, Johnson & Johnson hired the prestigious consulting firm McKinsey & Company to help increase sales. McKinsey recommended targeting doctors who were prescribed large amounts of OxyContin and advised the drug maker to target high abuse risk patients. This sounds more like conversations that might take place between members of a drug cartel than what one would expect from strategy sessions involving American business executives. McKinsey also served as a consultant to Purdue, advising both Purdue and Johnson & Johnson to quote-unquote invent an epidemic of untreated pain to increase demand for their products. This turned out to be a successful strategy. Makers of opioids funded what appeared to be an independent organization called the American Pain Society, APS, which promoted the idea that pain relief with opioids was a human right. The APS was responsible for convincing the Veterans Administration and the Joint Commission, TJC, formerly the Joint Commission on the Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, or JACO, to recognize pain as the fifth vital sign, along with markers like blood pressure and temperature, and to prioritize treatment of pain with opioids. A lawsuit filed by several municipalities in West Virginia against TJC reveals that TJC partnered with Purdue Pharma and other opioid makers to issue pain management standards that misrepresented the risk of opioid addiction and resulted in inappropriate prescribing of the drugs. The lawsuit alleges TJC continued this partnership even after Purdue had pled guilty to felony criminal charges for misrepresentation concerning OxyContin in 2007. 
According to Chris McGreal, author of American Overdose, Purdue wrote and distributed educational materials for free for TJC in return for opportunities to interact with and train medical staff. Videos and manuals stated that concerns about addiction and overdose were, quote, inaccurate and exaggerated, end quote. Additionally, Purdue funded over 20,000 educational programs on pain, which were thinly disguised sales seminars for the company's products. On TJC's website, the organization disingenuously presents itself as an independent organization with a mission to, quote, to continuously improve health care for the public, end quote. TJC certifies over 22,000 healthcare organizations and programs in the U.S., issues a gold seal of approval to qualify an institution, and states that its vision is for all people to experience the safest and best quality healthcare. This seems inconsistent with the organization's actions, which included partnership with Purdue to expand the prescribing of opioid drugs. TJC is a powerful organization, and its standards dictate the way American hospitals and medical facilities are operated. It forced medical institutions and healthcare professionals to actively look for pain in patients and treat it with opioids. According to McGreal, the Joint Commission has recently changed its guidelines, but denies any wrongdoing. The Joint Commission states that doctors and the APS were to blame for the opioid crisis because they presented false evidence. This is interesting. How can the TJC claim to offer a certification that has any meaning at all if it essentially believes any information presented to it without further investigation? The APS disbanded in 2019, claiming it was the victim of a witch hunt. None of the groups or individuals involved in the debacle seem to have any intention of taking responsibility and instead present themselves as victims. The Federation of State Medical Boards is a nonprofit organization that develops guidelines for 70 state medical boards in the United States and its territories and co-sponsors medical licensing examinations. The Federation took $100,000 from Purdue Pharma to help pay for the printing and distribution of, quote, responsible opioid prescribing, a physician's guide. The Federation estimated that it would need $3 million to complete its marketing program to promote the safe use of opioid drugs for chronic pain. Six other makers of opioids were asked to contribute to this campaign. The FDA is equally culpable, approving new opioid drugs while more and more Americans were dying because of taking them. The agency is still doing this. It approved Dusovia in 2018, a more potent version of fentanyl. This decision, which is difficult to reconcile in view of the ongoing opioid crisis, results from the fact that the FDA is funded primarily by the drug companies and now collects about $2.6 billion annually from industry. Not surprisingly, the approval rate for drugs is 96%. Even though a significant percentage of its operating budget comes from drug companies in the form of these fees, the FDA denies that this financial support influences its decisions right. The American Medical Association, the AMA, played a role too, opposing a law introduced in Congress that would have required doctors to receive training to prescribe opioids. Members of Congress funded by Big Pharma helped the AMA to kill the bill with public attacks on sponsors and advocates. Congressman Butterfield, a Democrat from North Carolina, praised the drug distributors for their very impressive efforts to stop opioids from ending up in the hands of people who should not take them. The irony was at the same time that this statement was made, the companies were paying fines to the Justice Department for failing to report suspicious orders from small rural pharmacy for millions of pills. Why is this important? 
Orchestrating a fake pandemic required that medical professionals, quote, buy in that there actually was a pandemic and that they remain on board even as the data started to clearly show that something was amiss. The World Health Organization characterized the COVID-19 outbreak as a pandemic on March 11, 2020, when there were 118,000 cases and 4,291 people had died worldwide. By March 26, the World Health Organization reported that there were 575,444 cases and 26,654 deaths from coronavirus since the debacle began. According to the CDC, as of March 28, there were 103,321 cases and 1,668 deaths from coronavirus in the United States. Another CDC website reported that during the 2018-2019 flu season, there were an estimated 35.5 million cases, 406,600 hospitalizations, and 34,200 deaths from the seasonal flu. The CDC estimated that for the 2019-2020 season, there would be between 17 million and 24 million medical visits for flu in the United States. 370 to 670,000 hospitalizations for flu, and between 22,000 and 55,000 deaths. These data, which were taken directly from the WHO and CDC websites, simply do not make sense. How can 575,444 cases of coronavirus worldwide result in the world as we know it slowly being shut down, while tens of millions of cases and as many as 13 to 33 times the number of deaths from seasonal flu in the U.S. alone require no response at all, with the exception of constant nagging to get a flu shot, which the CDC acknowledges may or may not work? Most directors of state health departments quickly bought the story. It is apparent that none of them actually checked to confirm that the declaration of a pandemic was substantiated. It did not take much to convince these doctors that the hospitals would soon be overwhelmed and that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, were going to die. The lockdown orders started. But what was truly amazing is the weeks and months after the pandemic failed to materialize, the hospitals were empty and the death rate was lower than the seasonal flu. These doctors continued to behave as if COVID-19 was still an imminent threat. The people who orchestrated this debacle knew that doctors are easy to convince of almost, well, apparently anything. They could count on the medical profession to implement the plan regardless of what the data showed. The media at one time was comprised of principled reporters and investigators who were determined to find and report the truth about government, politicians, businesses, and important issues of the day. In recent years, however, the mainstream media has degenerated, and ethical decision-making and journalistic integrity seem to be things of the past. This view is widespread, and polls have consistently shown that most people no longer trust the media. One survey showed that inaccuracy, bias, alternative facts, and too much reporting based on opinion and emotions were reasons for distrusting the media. Why is this important? The plan required that reporters and media outlets dutifully report any information given to them. Fact-checking and asking challenging questions would turn up inconvenient information that might cause people to question whether there was a pandemic and if the responses to it were reasonable. Powerful people and institutions knew that the media could be counted on to deliver a carefully crafted message and to induce and maintain a panicked population by repeating the same inaccurate messages again and again. 
Governments in westernized countries have expanded exponentially and exerted increasing levels of control over citizens. The conversation of elected officials to rulers of people began a long time ago and was rather gradual, so as to not alarm most people. The idea of increased government control had become so mainstream that by early 2020, Bernie Sanders, who openly praised Fidel Castro and the communist China, was on his way to earning the Democratic nomination for president of the United States. The party did not let this happen. But this showed many U.S. citizens thought at a time that socialism and communism, both of which involve incredible levels of government control, were acceptable. Why is this important? It's easier to orchestrate a fake pandemic if significant numbers of citizens can be counted on to do as they are told by government officials. Instructions included sheltering in place, closing businesses, wearing masks, sometimes even when inside one's own home, consenting to temperature checks and other medical evaluation at hair salons and appointments, and snitching on people who violated the orders, sometimes even family members and friends. The bottom line. The timing for COVID operation was perfect. An uneducated populace, a significant percentage who favored more government control, government officials, many elected because they promised to institute more big government plans, medical doctors who could be convinced to do almost anything, and a media that would promote and reinforce the narrative were the necessary ingredients to pull off the biggest hoax in the history of the world. That was a lot, wasn't it? And so if you're still listening, I want to thank you for sticking out for the long haul. Hopefully that will be one of the longest excerpts that I read from this series for the COVID operation. I got to be honest with you. When I started reading this book, I got through the first chapter and I threw it. And I said, I don't want to read this. It's just going to upset me. And I don't want to be activated. And maybe you've been doing what I do. And sometimes I get really overwhelmed especially by all this COVID talk. And I think, you know what? I don't want to hear about it anymore. I'm just, I'm going to shelter myself away from speech around COVID. But at the same time, sometimes we need to face the atrocities of what humanity is capable of so that we can see another example of what we never want to experience again and what we never want to participate in again and of what we never want to perpetuate for ourselves to people that we care about. It's a catch-22. I want the information. I want to be informed. But I don't want to be activated by it. I want it to be an effective piece of information. And so that is my hope with this series that I'm doing, is that it's effective information to help you make better informed decisions going forward. Now, I've been of the mindset for quite some time that the the healthcare system has been turned into this dependent mechanism that people rely on so they don't have to be responsible for themselves. And I've just kind of opted away from that dependency, right? Codependent relationships are not healthy. Um, and being addicted to a service that actually never provides you with any solutions was something I didn't want to get involved in right? I think people are addicted to healthcare. They're addicted to their doctors. They believe their doctors. They think their doctors are these wonderful people. I've had this argument with my husband for countless years. He has this, this faith in individual doctors. And I just, I look at it the same way a lot of people look at the police force, right? They're useful, but there's so many bad apples that it's like, cut all the fucking trees, man. 
and let's just start a new orchard. Let's start with some new trees, some new seeds, some good apples, not some bad apples. And that's how I look at the healthcare system. That's how I look at the government. The whole fucking government, to me, for as long as I can remember, has never been my friend, has always been my enemy, has always been opposed to me, has always tried to invalidate my individual existence. And I just want to help spread that information around. I'm not trying to get you to think like me, trying to reject the systems like I do. I am in an individual experience. And so I have come to the conclusions and the positions that I have because of my own life experience, right? I was 12. I was in a horrible car accident. I relied on a hospital to take care of me. I relied on healthcare workers to take care of me. If you've ever had a baby, I've had five. I've had twins, right? We rely on those people to take care of us and to give us the best qualitative care possible. In the last two years, we haven't been seeing that happening, right? And we've we've been shocked to hear reports. I, I know I have in seeing that some doctors and hospitals and clinics are actually refusing care to patients unless they prove that they've been vaccinated. And all the while, over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, I've just always picked up on those messages that pharmaceutical companies are not your friends. You're an ATM to them. You're a way for them to get rich, and you're a way for them to justify keeping countries dependent on prescriptions. And I just, I don't want to support that. So anyway, that's just a little gist of uh, what I'm thinking and and how I'm responding to what I just read um, and and just sharing with you kind of the, the thought process that I've been going through as I've been reading this book, as I've been living in this pandemic. I, I'm not here to encourage you to go around telling everyone that, you know, COVID is a hoax and this whole pandemic was a big planned operation, you know, just just to make money. I think there's so much more behind this, but... Since day one, something smelt fishy, and uh, I think two years later, we're starting to see that there's there's some spoiled tuna that's been sitting in the back of the oven, and uh, we're tired of the smell, so we're going to clean the shit out. So that's that, and that's the end of uh, part two of the COVID operation. I hope you will tune in for COVID operation part three, where I talk about our, our good friend, Billy Gates. So... Until next time, thanks for listening.